This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Today is uh, today's a great holiday uh, in our Christian calendar. Obviously, it's Palm Sunday, and this marks the beginning of Holy Week, as I've said a couple times already. Um, and on Friday, of course, we have another holiday. Good Friday is coming up. And as you know, as I've already said, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, another holiday. And if you look at our calendar, if you go look at your calendar, every calendar... It's just stocked with holidays. And increasingly, our holidays are being added to the calendar. Uh, recently, just like a week or two ago, I heard about a new holiday, um, a new national holiday called something like a girl, Girls' Day or Women's Day or I don't know, um, something to that effect, National Girl Day, I think is what somebody told me. Lydia, is that what it was? No? Well, Women's Day, National Women's Day. I don't know. There are all kinds of holidays. I get them, get them confused. Some kind of female holiday. That's right. Um, and uh, back in February, we celebrated Valentine's Day. But I was surprised to learn that January 25th had also become a national holiday. And you probably missed it, just like I did. Anyone know what holiday it was? National Opposite Day. That's a real holiday now, National Opposite Day. Um, and it's officially legit a holiday, National Opposite Day. Um, it's that, that silly day we celebrated in grade school, right? Um, on Opposite Day, you can wear your shoes on the wrong feet. I was going to do that today just for fun. You can wear your shirt and your shorts backward, crisscross style, if you get the reference. You can eat dinner for breakfast and breakfast for dinner. You can do that any day, but you can also do it on opposite day. Um, you can wear your shoes on your hands instead of on your feet if you want to do that. Um, you can, uh, you can uh, <laughs> write or brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. Right? Do it with the opposite hand than you usually do. You can style your hair on the opposite side or in an opposite way. You can walk backward. I wouldn't recommend driving backward at least not very far. You can put your dirty clothes in the dishwasher and your dishes in the clothes washer on opposite day. You can take a hot shower instead of a cold or vice versa, depending on what you normally do. Uh, Backward sentences you're saying, can you? See what I did there? You can say your sentences backward. Um, But here's my conviction that today... Not January 25th is opposite day. Today is opposite day. Palm Sunday is an excellent example of opposite day. Is this the second slide? Um, so perhaps we should have done the sermon first, like flipped the service and made it kind of opposite than we usually do. But we're going to start with the bottom line. Um, this isn't what I was wanting to get to, but let me go back. Either way, where's it at? There it is, the bottom line. For Christians, every day is opposite day. Very simple seeming. 
Okay? For Christians, every day is opposite day. But you know what? Maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Maybe not in the way you're thinking. So for the next few minutes that we have together, I want to explain what I mean by this. And perhaps try to persuade you that every day is opposite day um, and of a few more things. So I'm going to begin, though, with a story to get us going on this. It's, it's not a long story, but I think a lot of you can probably relate to this story. It's a story that actually the setting is in the Midwest of the mainland. Um, and it's a story that's happened much more than once. It's a riding in the car or driving in the car story. And as you go through the Midwest, as you go through places like uh, West Virginia or Illinois or Indiana or Kentucky, Georgia, Tennessee, Ohio, this is a very common story. When you're in a car and you're cruising through one of these states, you're going to see some signs along the road, okay? And they're religious signs, not big billboards, just religious signs. They're supposed to be Christian signs. But perhaps more often than not, they have an air of intimidation about them. They're kind of like, they come off as bullying a little bit. They're like muscle flexing, fear inducing signs. You probably know where I'm going with this. And so as you're driving, for example, from Columbus, Ohio, south to Cincinnati, Ohio, you'll see these signs. Inevitably, you'll see them. It's a series of signs. They're white. They're, they're, they're painted white. And they have big red lettering painted on them. They're often spaced out like an eighth of a mile or a tenth of a mile. So as you're going 65 miles an hour or 90 like they do in Ohio, um, you can read them in succession. And the first one, the first sign will do something like this. It'll say, hell is real. Dun, dun, dun. Right, driving along and looking at the beautiful cornfields and the tobacco fields and boom, hell is real. You see the first sign. The second sign reads, Jesus is coming back. That's the second sign. And the third one says, it's a question, are you ready? And the fourth one will say, if you died tonight, dot, dot, dot. And then the fifth one will say, where would you go? Question mark. And there are a number of sort of variations or spinoffs of this uh, succession of signs, but you get the point. These signs... They use these fear tactics. They have a goal. And the goal is to get you and me thinking about the afterlife. What's going to happen to you? Are you safe? You sound? You secure? If you died tonight, where would you go? And as most of you know, the fiery preachers of old, they loved asking that question in their sermons. The evangelists, if you died tonight, where would you go? It's a loaded question, isn't it? And purposefully so. It's meant to be a loaded question. But I just want, I want to, can I be straight up with you? Usually am anyways. I'm going to get vulnerable for just a minute. I don't like these signs. Uh, I don't even like that question. If you died tonight, where would you go? And frankly, you know, just kind of telling you all, like, saying I don't like those signs, it kind of makes me feel like I've betrayed my Midwest and, and Southern roots a little bit. 
um, my Bible Belt culture a little bit, but it's okay, I'm fine with it. I'll get over it. Because I think there's a much better, much better, much healthier question that needs to be asked. And it's opposite day. So the question I have is the opposite. It's a question at the, uh, I was prompted by this, uh, reading some Dallas Willard, but the, the, this question is, it's not, it's not like those succession of signs say, if you died tonight, where would you go? There's a better question, a healthier question. And the question I have is this, if you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? Much better question. If you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? Oh, I love that. Yeah, you, you see that it, it reframes it all, right? It reframes it all. It reframes everything. If you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? Like, will you live meaningfully? Will you make the most of it? Will you seize the day? Will you take advantage of, of the time that you've been given? Or will you squander tomorrow? Like, waste it, throw it away, disregard it, ignore it, shove it under the bed, shove it in the cabinet. If you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? And don't you think... Friends, as Christians, that our answer to that should be fundamentally different than how, say, the rest of society would answer that question. Because after all, as I said last week in our sermon online, the obedient live different. We follow God's ways, and because of that... The way that we live runs counter, it runs counter to the way the world lives. The way we live is not by trying to mirror the culture, to look like culture and sound like culture, to become counterfeits, but the opposite, opposite day. Yeah, yeah. For Christians, every day is opposite day. It's not to say, of course, right, that there's no gray areas in life. There are. There surely are. But there's black and white in life too, right? There are binaries in life. Surely there are binaries in life. There is male and female. And I'm not wiggling on that. Right? Period. There's hot and cold. There's up and down. There's right and left. And so part of the task for each of us as Christians and for us as a group of Christians in our professions, in our families, uh, in our relationships and so on, the task is to figure out how to look and sound and be more like Jesus and less like everyone else and less like everything else around us. In the world, not of it. In, not of. And on this Palm Sunday, as we approach our focal text, which is going to be John's Gospel, we're going to go right to the center of John's Gospel, almost John 12, 12 to 19. And the scene appears in John's Gospel with some variants in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But 
Here in the middle of John's gospel, we see this Jesus whom if we look like closely at him, he exudes this reality that for him and his followers, indeed, every day is opposite day. This is a thoroughly Jewish story in John's gospel, and it brims with a bunch of details. But you know what? Because we weren't there, and because we're thousands of years removed, it's easy for us to miss some of these details and really miss what the Palm Sunday story is trying to do and trying to tell us what it did then and what it was signaling then. And so we got to dig. And what really happens in the Palm Sunday story is this intersection of opposites, like opposing forces, opposing worldviews, opposing belief systems. And in this intersection of opposites, there's this collision. The scene reminds us at the very least that we as Christ's bride, his church, cannot embody God's kingdom by trying to look and sound and be like a kingdom that isn't of God. And that's a good word for us today. A really good word. We live in a context where so many churches have in their lust to be relevant, which is always the first step toward heresy, a lust for relevance. Right? These churches in their lust to be socially relevant, politically relevant, whatever, just to be relevant... They've forsaken what it means to live under God's reign and under God's rule, but today is opposite day. And so my hope is that the Spirit will teach us and convict us on these matters. Now, just before dropping into John, before we look at these verses, let me say just a brief word about John's Gospel. Because we're dropping into the middle of it, like if we opened it up, we'd be in the middle we're not getting that 12, first 12 chapters backstory. And because we're not getting that, we stand a chance of ripping some things out of context. And so in the lead up to that chapter, I want to give you just a little bit of background, these two points. All right, the first point is this, that the John's Gospel begins with the words, in the beginning. And you're good Bible readers, all of you, right? Where's that pointing back to? Anybody? Genesis, you're all muffled with your mask, but yes, Genesis. It's a clear reference back to Genesis. It's Genesis. We can't get away from it, even when we're trying, right? It's pointing right back to Genesis. And so for John to begin this way with, in the beginning, it's making a profound statement to those who would have heard this. It's a way of signaling, just like the Noah story did in Genesis 9, that another creation has commenced has started. It's underway. So in Genesis 1, we have the creation. In Genesis 9, we have the recreation. And here in John 1, we have the new creation beginning in Jesus. And the second point, just like there are seven days in the creation process of Genesis 1, John, the way he structures his gospel, he he structures it around seven signs. And these seven signs, they appear along with seven things that Jesus says and does, and they symbolize a new creation. And here in our verses that we're about to read, we're going we're gonna to find mention of the seventh sign, this raising of Lazarus. And the seventh sign, like the other signs, they all have one main point. 
What's the purpose of these signs in Genesis? It's a way of where John shows us that here in this moment, divinity and humanity intersect. Heaven and humanity, heaven and earth intersect. They overlap. When Jesus raises Lazarus, the divine and human realms have now overlapped. Just like in Genesis, God created and the divine and the human overlapped, creating a sacred space, a garden where God dwelled. And in John's gospel, Jesus is that sacred space. He is the locus of God's presence. And it's that fact that colors everything in John's story. So we're going to turn to this. It's a short span of verses. We're going to see what insight we can get from this here on Palm Sunday, opposite day. The text says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, Passover week, had heard that Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus, he found a donkey, and he sat on it. As it's written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated and on a donkey's colt. Jesus found this young donkey. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples, they didn't understand all this. Some of us probably don't understand it. Clearly as well. Hopefully you will in a minute. His disciples, they didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, as he was crucified and raised, did they, they realize the, that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus, that's the seventh sign in John's gospel, from the tomb and raised him from, from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, the seventh sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The short span of verses seems simple, but remember it's opposite day. The reality is these verses, which... which uh, which tell this great story, have a lot going on, right? And so they tell the story of Jesus riding on a donkey up to the temple, and they're the loaded verses. Now, I want to illustrate this for you in two ways. The first way deals with the Jewish uh, practice of reading Scripture and dealing with Scripture and just some Jewish practices. So the Jewish side of things, Jewish holidays. And the second way deals with the Roman government, and knowing the Jewish and Roman aspects of this is hopefully going to shift your understanding of the story, which you've heard so many times, and maybe to a new perspective. And maybe it's going to say the opposite, really, of what we think it just said. So let's consider these contextual elements, and then we're going to come back to these verses. So when we read in Mark's Gospel, let's go from John to Mark for just a moment. We'll read in Mark's Gospel. Mark tells the story from a little bit of a different angle. Right? So John's over here telling it one way. Mark is telling it from a little bit of a different vantage point. 
Matthew's version, he's over here telling it from another vantage point. So they're looking at the same thing, telling it from different perspectives. And when Matthew tells it, right, Matthew's is hilarious. Go read the story today. When Matthew tells it, he says that Jesus is riding two donkeys. Literally, the Greek and English texts say that. It's kind of funny. Like, I, I mean, is he like big straddling? Like, how is he put, is he like got one foot on one and another? And he's like, you know, like, uh, I don't know. What do you call that when skiing, right? Like, how is he doing? How is he riding two donkeys at once? Like, what's going on there? Um, but as you read the gospel accounts, you see these nuances. And in Mark's gospel, in Mark's account, Jesus is portrayed as a priest, Oh, I love this. It's a, a significant detail we got to know for this story. Now, if you go back, this is amazing to me. I love scripture. If you go back and you read Leviticus 14, who's reading Leviticus a lot, right? Um, but if you go back and you read Leviticus 14, it's a book about like all this purity and cleanliness stuff. And um, they had this perspective in ancient Israelite culture that people as well as buildings could contract leprosy. Now, that might sound really weird to you, but in like a thousand years from now, people are going to be looking back and thinking they thought like buildings and mail could contract coronavirus, right? So it shouldn't be too foreign to us that we think diseases can be on people and on buildings and objects, right? So they thought that people and buildings could contract leprosy. And that's why we're still wiping everything down today, because I guess we think corona can jump onto everything. I don't know. Um, and... So what would happen is if leprosy was suspected. This is, this is awesome. This is really cool. Leviticus 14. What, what would happen is that the priest, he would go into the leper's house. He would look at the leper, but he would also look around the leper's house. He would look at everything, inspect everything to see if the house was infected or not. Does the house have leprosy? So they'd enter, out, enter in and look around. And if the people have it, they're pronounced unclean. And if the building has it, oh, if your house has leprosy, it's got to be torn down. So check this out. Leviticus 14.45 says it this way. If the house have leprosy in it, it must be torn down. It's stones and timbers, all the plaster and the parts taken out of the town to an unclean place. And so Mark tells us, the way Mark tells this Palm Sunday story, he says Jesus hops on the donkey and he, he trots up the mountainside to the temple, right? And as he gets on the donkey and he's riding up, just like John said, the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus hops off the donkey and what's he do? It's sort of like an anticlimactic scene in Mark's gospel. He hops off the donkey, he goes in the temple, and he looks around, and then he exits. He doesn't do anything. Like you expect him to go in there and like lay it down, but he doesn't. He just looks around. That's how Mark says it. Just looks around. But he's not just there for fun. He's making a public statement. His actions are speaking louder than his words. His actions are, in fact, screaming. They're not screaming. There's a new sheriff in town, but there's a new priest in town. It's an incredible act. 
He's signaling. I mean, could you imagine me walking into any church on the island and, and taking the pulpit on Sunday and be like, there's a new preacher here today, right? Like that's what he's doing. He's walking into the temple and doing that, right? He's telling these priests, you are done. You're done. The corrupt systems you've built up on the back of this temple are on their way out. I'm the new priest, he's saying, and he's going to look in, he's going to leave, and he's going to come back the next day with his verdict, clean or unclean. Just like the priest would do in Leviticus 14.45. And so as Mark tells the story, uh, the next day, on his way back up to the temple, Jesus, he's, he's heading back and he sees this fig tree. He sees a fig tree, but this fig is not like it's supposed to be. This particular fig tree, there's no figs on it. There's no fruit on it. It's like all dried up, right? And it's essentially dead, right? It's pointless. It's irrelevant. It's useless, but it keeps going. He goes on up the mountain again into the temple, and he flips over the table where they're dealing money, taking money from people. They're selling pigeons and this doves, whatever. And he goes over to that table where they're collecting the money and he flips it. Now, the problem isn't that there's money in the temple. In antiquity, what you need to know during Jesus' day is that the temples were the banks. They were the banks of the ancient world. So that wasn't the problem. Every temple functioned also like a bank, pretty much. And the problem is this that the priests running this temple were overcharging during Passover. They were overtaxing on Passover, and they were burdening the people on Passover. They were taking advantage of the holiday, and it infuriated Jesus. And so they had turned a holy day into an unholy day, into a day of self-gain, and that's why Jesus is frustrated, and he flips the table. He leaves, and on his way out, he sees that same fig tree again, and he curses it. And the whole point of that is this. The Passover week, a holy week, during that week, the temple, right, the temple should be in full bloom. It should be bearing so much fruit during Passover week and pointing to God during Passover week. But instead, these corrupt priests have leveraged the holiday for their own social gain, their own financial gain, their own political gain. You ever heard of any ministers doing such a thing? Right? And so, for all intents and purposes, the temple is dried up and dead just like the fig tree. It'll never again bear fruit. It's coming down. And as the new priest, Jesus renders his verdict of clean or unclean, and you already know the answer, unequivocally unclean. And because the priests made the temple God's house unclean, as Leviticus says, not a stone will be left. It's going to be toppled. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Mark 13 after he leaves the temple with his disciples. And in 70 CE, that's exactly what happened. The temple came down. So there's that. Jesus making that statement, the statement that he's the new priest starting a new priesthood. But there's more. We have the fig tree, 
We also have the palms. And the fig tree and the palms are two very Jewish symbols. And so there's your fig tree right there. The fig tree over here was a symbol of the Jewish leadership. Really, it was the religious establishment's symbol. If we could say like there was a Jewish empire, well, the fig tree is its logo, its symbol, its brand marker. And here comes Jesus, and what does he do on his journey in and out of the temple? He curses the temple's symbol. He curses the sacred image, this fig tree, this logo of the Jewish religious establishment. Essentially, what Jesus does is burns the flag. It's a prophetic act. He's acting like one of the Hebrew prophets. And so he's portrayed here as a prophet and a priest. We can't miss these symbols. But he's also portrayed as a king. Prophet, priest, and king. Where does this notion come in? With the palm leaves and the donkey. Recall what Jesus said in John's verses. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. Luke has that same thing too. And it's an Old Testament quotation actually. It's taken directly from the prophet Zechariah. Straight from Zechariah 9.9. And before we go further, let me give you our word of the week. Here it is. It's remez. It's a Hebrew word. Hang on to this word. It's great. Remez is a Jewish form of handling the Scripture where by citing only part of a verse or a chapter, you're actually invoking the whole thing. So uh, when I say in the beginning God, your mind probably goes right back to Genesis 1 and you're thinking of the whole of Genesis 1, the whole creation story. And so when Jesus invokes Zechariah 9.9, He's doing exactly that. He's doing a remez. He's using the part to bring the whole into view. And don't lose this. Super powerful. Since we're so far removed, we have to dig a little deeper, like I said. Remember, there weren't chapter and verse numbers originally in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts. They weren't there. Those were added thousands of years later. So by citing 9-9, Zechariah 9-9, he's meaning to bring the whole thing into view, including the very next verse, Zechariah 9-10. And what does that say? Check this out. Look at this. 9-9. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. 9-10, watch. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, that is the Messiah, the King, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Holy crap, did you see that? Did you see that there? Did you see that? And so the people, right, they're shouting these hosannas as Jesus rides his donkey up the mountain to the temple. By the way, this word hosanna, it's another Hebrew word, super important word. It, it doesn't mean like chihoo or, or, or woohoo or wahoo, whatever. It doesn't mean something like that, right? It means that the first part, hosa, hosa means deliver us. And the ana or the na part on the end of that means now. Right? So in shouting Hosanna, what they're shouting is, deliver us now! Like right now! Deliver us now! 
These people shouting, Hosanna, deliver us now, deliver us now. Right? They knew they weren't idiots, just like we're not idiots. They knew that their government, their, their leaders had overreached. Sound familiar? They knew their political and religious officials had become corrupt. Sound familiar? They could smell it just like we can with our leaders. They knew of the corruption. And then they're screaming and they're crying out for deliverance from it. And so Jesus cites this. Look, I'm going to bring deliverance, but not with war. Not with violence. Not with war horses. Not with battles. Not with bows. Not with arrows. No violence. I'm bringing deliverance now with peace. If you want peace on earth, follow me. There's no other way. You see, it's not a picture of Jesus asking them, so Mr. Palm Branch waving guy, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? No, 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 no. It's a picture of Jesus saying, Mr. Palm Branch waving guy, if you wake up tomorrow, what are you going to do? You going to follow me or not? And when you're following me, will you continue committing to my way no violence, just peace. Will you follow me, the Prince of Peace? You see, the palm branches, it's not just for fun either. And during Passover, some scholars estimate that were, there were 200 to 300,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's not the city, it's not a big place, right? Some say, no, there's probably about a million people there. We don't know exactly. But here, along the road to the Temple Mount, we have people waving these palm branches, uh, this Jewish symbol. But it wasn't, the palm branch was a different symbol than the fig symbol. The religious establishment used the fig symbol as their symbol, their logo. But the palm branch symbol was a symbol of the people. This, in ancient Judaism, is the symbol of resistance. This, in ancient Judaism, was a symbol of righteous rebellion. And so when you wave a palm branch on Palm Sunday, in the, the right way, in the right tradition, you're waving a symbol of resistance, a symbol of rebellion, just like they were. They had always, there had always been uprisings and resistance movements in Judaism. But only once, if you go back and you look at prior Jewish history to Jesus, only one time prior to Jesus had there really been any success in a Jewish resistance movement. It was led by this guy named Judas Maccabeus. And he defeated this uh, oppressive empire known as the Seleucids. And and as he defeated them, as he came back into town, they threw a big festival, a victory festival. And guess what the people did on the way, on his way back into town? What did they do? Waved palm branches, their symbol of resistance. And when they minted coins with Judas Maccabeus related to them, guess what symbol is featured on them? Palm branches. 
a palm tree, a palm branch, a symbol of resistance. And so in Jewish memory of Jesus' time, the palm branch was super social, super political. It was a symbol of righteous resistance, righteous rebellion. Hopefully this is starting to come together for you. Jesus acts as a new prophet. He acts as a new priest. He torches the symbol of the religious establishment, the fig. And he says the temple that they've set up is corrupted and coming down. And his people hear this and they wave the symbol of resistance and rebellion. And he's on a donkey saying, I'm king. But not through war and not through war horses. I'm bringing peace a different way. And so he rides his donkey up that mountain, super political. For anyone who says that Jesus wasn't political, wasn't involved in politics, psh, you don't know Jesus' story. He was. Politics cost him his life. I mean, just imagine. Just imagine hundreds of thousands in Jerusalem waving the palm branches. How many? Uh, we don't know, presumably a lot, but you, you get this whiff of resistance bubbling up in the air. And if you're a political official, you're kind of getting nervous. Hundreds of thousands of people waving these palm branches, perhaps. In particular, if you're Pontius Pilate, who's supposed to be overseeing this region on behalf of the Romans, if you're him, you start to get really nervous. Because what if things get out of hand? What if there is an uprising? Like, Pilate's thinking, I better act sooner than later. Pilate's thinking, I better remind them, don't screw with Rome. And so how does Pilate do this? How does he send this message? Here's how he does it. This is exactly how he does it. He sends a ton of troops to the Temple Mount during Passover week. And he marches them up and down the temple, and he makes a show of it in Jerusalem. He gives his own parade. It's a military parade. He's showing the ancient equivalent of his jets, his fighter jets, and his weapons. He decks his soldiers out with armor and swords and spears and flashy garments, and he marches them in lines, and their steps, they sound like thunder, but out front, in front of all of them, is Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and they put him, like Alexander the Great used to do when he would enter, they put him on a big stallion, a what? A war horse. And guess what they called this festival, this, this marching in? They called it a triumph, a triumphal entry. It was a triumphal entry. There's Pilate. He's leading the procession. He dons the Roman symbol, the war eagle. That's their logo. It's out front. And it's a reminder. Behind him are those carrying the Roman flags and waving the Roman flags. And the flags, they have their symbols on them. They have the names of the divine rulers, the divine Caesars on them. And behind them are the centurions marching. And behind them are the legions marching. And behind them are the cavalrymen. The foot soldiers are first. And then the mounted soldiers on horses are next. And then uh, what you see is the chariot soldiers near the end. And if you don't get out of the way, you're done. It's a grand show. Amazing, stunning, 
terrifying, fear-inducing military might power. A statement, a political statement in the highest degree, stand down, Jesus. Don't even think about trying to rise up and whoosh, pan over, pan the camera over to Jesus. And what do you see? He's riding a donkey and he's got fishermen walking next to him. A few Galilean fishermen. But the people are waving palm branches. It's opposite day. Let's read John again. It says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Not Pilate, Jesus. And they took palm branches out and they went out to meet him. And they were shouting, Hosanna, deliver us now, Jesus. Deliver us now, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, Jesus. And Jesus found this young donkey and he sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. And at first his disciples, they didn't understand this. How was this triumphant? They didn't understand this. Only after Jesus was raised, glorified, did they understand this. They realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him up from the dead began spreading the word, or kept spreading the word. And many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, where heaven and earth intersect, where the divine and human intersect, in this person, Jesus, they went out to meet him. They wanted to intersect with the divine. And so the Pharisees saw this and they said to one another, look, this is, this is getting us nowhere. It's like getting him everywhere. It's getting us nowhere. I mean, the whole world's going after him. Did you hear that? The whole world is going after him. Not after Pilate, not after Caesar, not after power, not after might, after Jesus. If you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? Go after Jesus or not? You see, our world, our world does a lot of opposites. Violence and peace, hatred and love, strong and weak, new and old, big and small, lesser and greater. And as John tells his story, He's, he, he strings readers along with these seven signs, these seven important signs that remind us right here and right now that in Jesus, we have peace and love and true strength. And they're the opposite of the way that the world defines them. And so Jesus radically redefines it all. Jesus says, peace doesn't come through war. Love doesn't come through overpowering and manipulating. Strength doesn't come from lording it over. It comes from serving. Newness comes through trusting the old, old story. Unity comes through seeking the good of others before ourselves. The way of Jesus' kingdom is the opposite of what the world's kingdoms do. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no violence and his followers are forbidden from being violent. In Jesus' kingdom, there's no violence. There's no self-elevation because his followers 
are the first who are striving to be last. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no tolerance for sin, as in the world's kingdoms. In Jesus' kingdom, there's no baptizing sin and calling it good and holy. In Jesus' kingdom, there's no show of force to strike fear into other people. In Jesus' kingdom, fear is not a, a tool to bully people, to intimidate them and manipulate them. In Jesus' kingdom, the fear-inducing question, where would you go if you died tonight, probably doesn't get so much as an inch. Instead, we're asked by Jesus, if you don't die tonight... What will you do tomorrow? And the expected answer from you and from me is follow you, Lord. If you don't die tonight, what will you do tomorrow? Follow you, Lord. You see, Jesus' kingdom Following Jesus, it looks less like building big military parades and more like securing a donkey for him to ride. It isn't the building of massive buildings or striving to have a legacy for ourselves and for our names. Instead, it's a kingdom of doing small things. Yes, he is greater than I, but also lesser is greater than greater. Lesser is greater than greater. Just like getting the donkey, just like Jody getting the palms, securing an upper room for Jesus, those little acts what we would consider lesser, those are greater. Jesus' kingdom, the engine of it, it, it sort of runs on small acts of selflessness. That's what Holy Week really looks like. It's a nonviolent people following a nonviolent king, Jesus, doing not just random acts of kindness, but purposeful acts of kindness. The opposite day. It's making trips to the hospital. It's baking cakes for somebody. It's creating and writing birthday cards and anniversary cards. It's teaching classes sharing meals with each other, making calls, preparing resources for the church, giving each other encouragement, being present with each other and in each other's lives. It's helping fix somebody's house or part of their house, helping fix somebody's car. It's giving somebody a ride playing instruments, singing songs. Taking trash, cleaning toilets, cleaning the bathroom. And a thousand million other little things like that that go unnoticed from time to time. 
those pictures are worth a thousand words. They keep the kingdom alive and well among us and in us. These acts, these gestures, they remind us all the time that we, this ohana, the obedient, live different. Because these acts, in all their smallness, flow from the love of God and Christ, which is in us. They flow from the Spirit who lives in us. And they carry the kingdom forward. They carry the kingdom on. These little acts among Christ's followers make every day opposite day. And so, what if you don't die tonight? What will you do tomorrow? I hope you'll follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand together. Pick up your palm branches. These symbols of resistance, righteous resistance. And in a minute, we're going to wave these on three together. When I count to three, and I just want to hear your best, loudest, Hosannas, deliver us now. And then I'm going to give you a benediction. So here we go. Let's do a bridge church. One, two, three. Hosanna! Woo, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Amen, brothers and sisters. And now, and now may you follow in Jesus' path of nonviolence and may you resist everything that stands against his kingdom and may you rise up in righteous rebellion and may you embody and enact the virtues of his kingdom. May it be on this Palm Sunday, this opposite day. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.